Hi, welcome to the Poultry Keepers Podcast. I'm Rip Stalvey, and together with Mandolin Royal and John Gunnerman, we're your co-hosts for this show, and it's our mission to help you have a happy, healthy, and productive flock. I got a question for you folks. Is there really a difference between a commercial meat bird and a heritage type dual purpose bird? Is there a difference in flavor? Why? Why not? Well, coming up, we're going to explain it all to you. You know, we hear so many times that other meats taste like chicken. I hear that a lot about the alligator down here. Tastes like chicken. That's <laughs> not really a compliment because to me, the chickens you get in the store don't have any flavor to them. Why is None that? at all. I was, I had the pleasure to talk with Frank Reese at the APA National one year in Knoxville, Tennessee. He and I were talking and he related a story to me that just kind of brought it all together about chicken flavor. He said that several years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago now, this lady was talking to him in, in the grocery store and she was just beside herself. She said, I just don't know what to do. My husband keeps telling me he wants chicken like chicken and dumplings like my grandmother used to make. And I've tried every recipe I can find. And he keeps saying, it's not what I remember. It's not what I remember. And Frank told her, he said, it's not the recipe you're using or how you're cooking it. It's the chicken that you're using. And he wound up giving her one of his barred rock chickens that the store handled there in Kansas. And she called him up the very next day and she said, look, I would hug your neck. She said, for the first time, my husband said, that tastes exactly like what I remember as a kid. He said, it's the kind of chicken and the length of time they're grown before they're processed. Let me ask you a question for Mandolin and for John. And they probably know the answer. I hope they know the answer. But. <laughs> How old are modern-day broilers when they're processed? Isn't there a range from 6 to 10 weeks old, depending on what they were going to use them for and if they were going to part them out or use them whole? John? When you say modern-day, I think of the Cornish Cross. and That's what I'm talking know, about. Yeah, modern we're chucking Cornish them cross. in the freezer yeah. 8, 9 weeks. Most of those birds are 6 to 8 weeks old when they're processed. Occasionally, they go out beyond that. Well, it doesn't make any financial sense to carry them past eight weeks. Their weight well, gain and everything just falls off dramatically and you're lucky to keep them alive. There's also the health issues that go along with those birds. I'll talk about that in just a little bit, but when you look at the science of flavor profiles in a chicken, and John, you're probably aware of this being a chef, but chickens don't begin to develop much of a flavor until they're about nine weeks old. So they're processing these birds before they can develop any flavor. So the flavor of chicken, modern day chickens, the Cornish cross is almost solely dependent on how they're prepared and what you season them with. Definitely. And the roosters don't have time for their testes to no. come in. And you know, that hormone definitely changes the flavor of the meat as well. That's why, you know, recipes like Coco Van exist. Because that's, you know, your old, tough, really strong tasting rooster. You're going to simmer that for a long time in red wine and shallots and mushrooms. Oh, and that recipe is worth it, too. There's a real good one from Julia Childs. 
floating around. Absolutely. Out there. I grew up on that. And the first time, even in culinary school, we were using, you know, commercially available chickens from Cisco and Monarch and same in the restaurants. It wasn't until I did these classical preparations with a heritage bird that it, it was a whole different world. I went, oh, this is what it's supposed to taste like. <laughs> I had tasted it before from my great grandmother's chicken and dumplings. And then there was a long time where after she passed away, no one was cooking chicken like that. And I probably made it 20 years before I got to taste a heritage bird again. And I had forgotten all about that nuance to the flavor profile. Like it tastes like chicken, but it's like here. Is that a word? Chicken <laughs> on steroids. <laughs> well, you also pick up what we call in the culinary world terroir or taste of place, which directly translates into the flavoring of the meat, the protein sources that the animals are foraging on. So if they're out that in my and yard. The micronutrients that are in, in oh, the soil that end up in, in the, the plant that end up in the bird. You or know, end up in the bird's digestive tract because that's all part of a, an ecosystem all the way through. And all of that is a whole science in itself that you could spend a oh. lot of time digesting all of that. But when did chicken flavor start to go south in this country? When the chicken I, changed. Oh, well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that was back in the 1950s, wasn't it? There was a chicken of tomorrow contest ah. sponsored by a grocery store chain you've been doing your homework you know which grocery store chain for some reason i want to say piggly wiggly just because i've been doing some research on them recently on another topic actually it was the atlantic and pacific tea Co. a and p a and p yep a and p markets i remember those and the first chicken of tomorrow contest was held in 1946 Earlier than I thought. Okay. Yeah. A little bit and earlier than I thought when I looked it up. But the reason they started that chicken of tomorrow contest, actually it's us, the consumers that was to blame for that because starting after world war two, there was a real demand for groceries or, or fresh vegetables and meat products that were all uniform in the way they looked and the way they prepared them. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was not, I mean, the chickens back then, a fried size chickens would dress out about two, two and a quarter pounds. Not these big behemoths that we get in the Cornish crossbirds now. So, Well, you would purchase the bird for the intention that you had. Yes. If you were going to be making fried chicken, you'd buy mm -hmm. a couple of smaller fryers. If you were going to make a roast chicken dinner for your you know, larger family, then you would get a roaster. One of the... The size birds that threw me. I was, I was got into a 1940s poultry cookbook and I looked at the different size categories of birds. And I guess this would kind of equate to our modern Cornish game hens on the market, but they had a bird that they called a pigeon bird. Wasn't a pigeon. It was, it was the size of a pigeon, but it wasn't a squab. It was not a squab. It was a chicken. So I was always wondering, where did the, the rock hen come in? You know, honestly, John, I haven't, I've looked for that and I don't have a good answer for you, but I think that it was a marketing ploy. They called them Cornish game hens because they were Cornish cross birds they were working with. And they were about the size of a small Cornish game bantam. 
Mm-hmm. Just my supposition. I can't back that. We, as a grocery clerk back in the late 70s, stocking shelves, we called them rock hens because they were hard as a rock. They were always frozen. They were never always fresh. Frozen. Yeah, yeah. And most of the chickens that our ancestors bought were always fresh. They weren't frozen. Sometimes so, they weren't even plucked yet. Yeah, that's right. You could go into big cities like New York and Chicago had large live poultry markets where you could go down and walk down the rows of cage and you could pick out the birds you actually wanted and they would process them and you'd take them home and eat them. But, you know, sadly, if we stop and think about it, we've only had about two generations or we've had not only, but we've had two generations of people who grew up not knowing what real chicken can taste like. There is a pretty big difference, too. When you compare like a six, seven, eight-week-old Cornish cross, even to something a little longer grown, like a Red Ranger, there's taste differences there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Once you go past 12 weeks of age, then the flavor really starts amping up. I'm not sure when it peaks, probably something like 20, 22 weeks once the hormones are in there. 20, 21 weeks is when they say the flavor profiles peak. Yeah, And if you time it right, and they're on rich pasture at that time of year, you can negate the additional costs in feed for keeping them longer past, you know, most people are processing 18 to 20. But if they're outdoors, they're, they should, in theory, be consuming less of your ration and more of what's available for forage and developing more flavor in the process. Yeah. It's almost, you know, it's like pasture finishing does make a difference in beef and chicken you can taste the difference absolutely and you're where an animal that i really can taste the difference is in pastured pork oh um, yes absolutely particularly i was so surprised when we processed a pig and that meat was red <laughs> what but <laughs> <What? laughs> i where i the pork that i like the best is the one that's been fattened in the fall and allowed to forage on acorns Oh, yeah, acorn Ooh, finish. That is yeah. delicious. We've got yeah, a couple of well-spaced oak trees. <laughs> Those ankle-breaking acorns. Yeah, just put the pigs on it. They'll clean it up in no time. <laughs> yeah, close the loop. Hey, this is a chicken okay, show. Back now. to chicken. I, 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 we've been talking about food, and it's so <laughs> easy for me to digress. Oh, ain't that the truth? We talked a little bit about the grow-out time and processing ages, and but let's compare that to feed conversions. So it takes about six to eight weeks to, to get a Cornish cross broiler up to market size. A heritage breed much longer than that, 16 to 21 weeks of age. The average market size weight for a Cornish cross, six to six and maybe almost six and a half pounds. That's processed weight. But when we look at the feed conversion, that's what really grabs your attention. What we're talking about, feed conversion, it's how many pounds of feed does it take to put a pound of weight on those birds? Right. The Cornish cross industry claims that they get about a two-to-one feed conversion rate. So for every pound of chickens, they're feeding two pounds of feed to do it. That's astronomical. That's- yeah, there's not a bird on the planet that can do that no. better. No. But now we got to remember, too, that this is under pretty tightly controlled conditions, high-quality feed, 
air quality is controlled, water quality is controlled. They're controlling everything to give them the optimum environment and the optimum nutrition to grow those birds out in a hurry. John, you were talking about pastured poultry. I, I found a site and the feed conversion for Cornish Cross on pastured situations, 3.5 to 1 for every pound of flesh. The feed inputs three and a half pounds. That's in optimum weather. That's pretty good by most standards. Yes, yeah, really is. And Mandolin, you're talking about Freedom Rangers, which is a it's a modern meat cross, but it's a slower growing meat cross than uh, Cornish cross. That feed conversion is five point two to one. They also did a study where they compared uh Heritage Dark Cornish standard bread bird is 6.2 to 1 feed conversion rate. So people want to know why folks who sell pastured poultry get so much for the heritage birds. Well, they have to. I mean, they can't, they cannot compete with the Cornish cross birds. They just simply can't do it. They've got a lot more feed and bring a heritage bird to market than they do the Cornish cross. And time. Oh, yes. I mean, the Cornish Cross, you could run three Cornish Cross harvests in the same time it would take to run two, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the same space. And with the the same amount of feed. Yeah, the flavor. You don't get that. I mean, and the differences between them is why we're doing what we're doing with the American breast. It takes longer, but not too terribly long. But that flavor. And And the fact that we're not dependent upon the poultry industry to provide us. You can't, somebody just can't go out and get some Cornish cross chicks and start their own line. That's doomed for failure. It's designed to fail to protect the investment on the part of the breeder. We can keep our birds going indefinitely as long as we provide, you know, sound breeding and husbandry practices. Mm Mm-hmm. We're good. We don't need to keep going back to the well for more. Well, in the Cornish cross, the the breeding that's behind them, it's incredibly complex. And they added in several different traits to end up with that. What are they? A four-way terminal cross hybrid. So there's four different parent flocks. 16-way cross. 16. 16 crosses have gone into making the modern Cornish cross that we eat. Well, and that's to get the dwarf gene to shorten the bones up, to get the expression of the double muscle gene. So they have twice as much meat on a frame that's half the size, and you can't reproduce that unless you do all of the steps they did to create it in the first place. Like You can't just go buy Cornish and White Rock, cross those together, and get a Cornish cross. It's not going to be the same kind of bird. Not at all. Not at all. And and you were talking about the dwarfism gene. Uh, if you look at a Cornish, um, a Cornish cross carcass compared to one of Mandy's breasts, you're going to see right off that the breast has bigger legs and it has bigger wings. Yes, that's well. <laughs> that's because a Cornish cross has a dwarf gene bred into it. Why did they do that? Well, they did it because. The consumer's demand for a meteor carcass. Not so much the legs, but they wanted more breast meat. Wanted more breast meat. Always want the bigger breast meat. 
And not only did they breed in the dwarfism gene, they bred in an obesity gene. If you put those Cornish cross, if you're breeding them, you'll notice that a lot of them don't move very far at all from the feeder. Yeah. They just sit there and they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat. Well, that was by design. The more they eat, the faster they grow. The faster they grow, the sooner you can harvest them. And the sooner you can harvest them, the more rotations you can run through the buildings, the more profit you can make within the year. Sure. The more people who get fed. And sadly, with the dwarfism gene, you're going to find that you get these shorter legs like we talked about and the shorter wings. Well, there's where all the leg problems in Cornish Cross come from. They've got such a small leg structure, they can't support that huge obese body. That's why they have mobility issues. That's why they have heart issues. That's why when you're moving your poultry mobile coops, you actually have to go into the pen and move your Cornish crosses to the the head of the coop so they don't get rolled over by their apparatus because they a lot of times they're not even capable of locomotion and well it's, it's kind of sad to see you know they're just like, laying listless with their head in the feeder or the water oh, all yeah, day yeah. versus a healthy vibrant vigorous heritage poultry that's running around in the exact same pasture you know these corners crosses at least in our case we had the doors wide open on their cages they wouldn't even come out during the day mm-hmm. and well is that that vitality, I think, definitely translates to the meat and to the consumer. Yeah. Well, and I think Mandy would ex- explain it. Here I go putting words in her mouth. Is they, <laughs> have, they have lost their ability to chicken. Yeah, they don't chicken so well anymore. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> well, and it's another thing I thought it was worth mentioning, too, because I see a lot of chatter about folks wanting to use them to hybridize into like the normal heritage birds and try to find like a balance and because of that dwarf gene you might waste maybe not waste it i mean it'll be educational to (laughs) experiment with the breeding to see how traits get expressed but the moment that dwarf gene kicks in it's not going to have the same effect and all you're going to do is lose size that'll happen like what three generations into this little project you'll start seeing yeah well, I, I talked to a hatchery about that one time, and I was talking about using the Red Rangers in a hypothetical cross with New Hampshire's. And they said, well, you can do that, but 25% of the chicks you're going to hatch are going to be dwarf. Yeah. Because so they that, have that same dwarf generation. Okay, so then we don't select the dwarf gene, or do we? They can if pop back in as a recessive later on, though. Oh, like, yeah, those grandparents. Recessives are always fun and great grandparents, great grandparents and grandparents. They all, all those crosses were made to incorporate specific recessive genes into the terminal crossbirds. Especially so that they expressed at a specific time. That's why there's these, you know, 16 different crosses at different stages. Mm -hmm. So that way, when this, when this recessive gene pairs with this, we're getting into polygenetics now. So you got two recessive genes on far ends that come together down here at the the final hybrid level that just works, but it only works at that level. You can't take it any further, otherwise it falls apart, and you can't use it any earlier because it it's not there in place yet. 
Yeah, I just thought that was an important little tidbit before people go, well, I'll just make my own. It's a little bit complicated. And sometimes the way it's designed, you can't replicate it. That stuff's trademarked and protected. But also preventing that fall apart of it later. I mean, there's protocols. Let me throw this one out there. We have multiple if you want to call it brand names of Cornish crossbirds out there, you've got Cobb, you've got Vantress, just on and on and on. But how many actual companies are involved in producing all these millions of broiler chicks each year? Following them all the way back to their mega corporation owners, Mm -hmm. probably two. Exactly right. Two companies Mm -hmm. control the genetics for the birds that are eaten worldwide. And that's scary from a nutritional anthropological perspective, because every time we've based a food system around a single thing, it's fallen apart eventually. Yeah. Well, in history, at least we're we're not going to repeat history, though, because we're smarter than that. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That cute, John. (laughs) Just think what disastrous results would be if they had a genetic issue tinkering with all these little recessive genes but they had something popped up and they if weren't they able lose to, one piece of their pie the whole thing gone. Called, it, it all collapses it all right. collapses but it's so, feeding billions of people it's working you know if so far how do we define working though it's working for the producers and the people are getting a clean protein source but well, there's there's really no freedom to the market and you you go to the market and you buy what's there. You don't have a choice. Exactly right. You know, we talked about age to maturity. We talked about flavor profiles. They started about nine weeks and they peak at about 20 weeks. You know, actually, and I don't know, Mandy, you may have run across this and John, you may have run across this, but it seems like some people actually have been on this industrial Cornish cross hybrid so long. They don't like the taste of a heritage bird. Or the texture, because the other thing that changes with age is the texture of the meat. And any bird that had time to go run and didn't park itself in front of a feeder, it's going to have denser muscling going on in the leg where it's leaner just from being used, just from them being out there doing chicken things. Texture is different, too. That's where the flavor comes from, too. Right. Mm -hmm. You, yes, you increase don't have blood that. flow. Pooey. You're exercising. The protein is building muscle. That's that's what happens physiologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So isn't the muscle going to be built out of the protein source and carry that flavor with it? I think so. And I know this is something you work with and you talk about a lot with breast and on your breast group. But you talked about the texture of the meat. I'd like for you. You and John, because I know he's a chef and he's hands-on experience with all this stuff, as as do you, Manlin. But what do you see as the major textural differences? It's almost like it's the fiber of the muscle. And I think I recall doing some reading where there's two different types of how they could be muscled up. You can be short fiber or long fiber. So if you take the thigh section off of a Cornish cross and you start shredding that meat, It shreds pretty finely. It's not like a really long strand. But when you shred down the meat from the thigh of a heritage bird, 
that strand of meat will run from one end to the other. And you almost have to cross cut it if you're going to chop it small for like a chicken salad or something like that. But you can see that difference of how the fibers are put together when you're getting into the thighs, especially. The breast meat's pretty similar one from another. You can see some variation between breeds. Like once you start going through all the different heritage breeds, even you'll see different ways of how that muscling is, where it's located, and then what the strands are like when you start breaking those birds down after cooking. The diversity there is kind of incredible, really. And then you can get really geeky and bust out your little magnifying glass and start checking for the intermuscular fat depositions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Those self-buttering birds. <laughs> hey, do I sense a rabbit hole coming up here? Thank you for joining us this week. And before you go, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you can receive new episodes right when they're released. And they're released every Tuesday. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd like to ask you to drop us an email at poultrykeeperspodcast at gmail.com and share your thoughts about the show. So, Thank you again for joining us for this episode of the Poultry Keepers Podcast. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.